Welcome to the show, everybody. This is your boy, Lo Jackson, coming to you live with the Only You podcast. This is a podcast where I like to do books that I find interesting in the psychology world that they may help somebody find ways to develop their mind and to overcome situations that are a deterrent to them. And maybe I'll help somebody grow from a book that I read and help somebody get out there and find this book, read it, and grow from it. Today I'm going to be doing a book called Criminal Psychology, a manual for judges, practitioners, and students by Hans Gross. Hans Gustav Adolf Gross was born on uh, the 26th of December, 1847. Well, happy birthday coming up, buddy. He met his unfortunate demise on December 9th, 1915, at the age of 67. Gross was born in... Styria, Austria. As a young adult, Hans Gross graduated in 1870 as a jurist, which a jurist examines justice. From his hometown's university in Upper Styria, his education resulted in two decades of learning knowledge and law. Gross served as examining justice of Styria, in which he served as a judge and prosecutor for all crimes presented to him. During his service, he dealt with several fraudulent charges. It was during this job that Gross realized that many shortcomings of the present justice system. Back then, the examining justice stood as a criminal investigator. During this time, there were very few crime investigators. But everybody knows that Sherlock Holmes was back then, so maybe... They got the idea from Sherlock from this guy. I don't know. <laughs> During this time, there were very few criminal investigators. Many of the law officers were volunteers or ex-police officers. As a result, jurists mainly solved the prosecuted all excuse me, jurists mainly solved and prosecuted all crimes brought before them. This proved to be a poor system as many of the Criminals and magistrates relied on their personal knowledge and limited facts or evidence. This lack of organization led the Gross's active work in criminal science. During his life, Gross did uh, much to establish several institutions regarding criminology. Gross mainly did this by reiterating the practice of criminal forensics. He taught and developed several institutions and furthered the influence of the field of criminology. Throughout the years, Gross taught and engaged in constructive debate while professor at the university, 1897 to 1902, uh, Prague University in 1902 to 1905, and the University of Graz in 1905 to 1915. Later, in 1898, he established the Institute of Criminology of Graz. In August 1898, he began to teach criminal law in which he presented the field of criminalities. However, many people opposed this idea, developing into a study claiming that it did not serve true beneficial value except to those involved in the criminal justice system. Despite opposing views, Gross established the field of criminalities, branding him forever 
as the founding father of criminal profiling. And now on to Criminal Psychology by Hans Gross. At the National Conference of Criminal Law and Criminology held in Chicago at Northwestern University in June 1909, the American Institute of Criminal Law and Criminology was organized, and as a part of its work, the following resolutions were passed. Whereas, it is exceedingly desirable that important treaties or crim criminology in foreign languages be made readily accessible in English language resolved that the President appoint a committee of five with power to select such treaties as in their judgment should be translated and to arrange for their publication. And which he was saying that because there was... Um, this book was actually written in uh, German. All this has been going on in Europe for 40 years past, and in limited fields in this country, all the branches of science that can help have been working. Anthropology, medicine, psychology, economics, sociology, philanthropy. The law alone has abstained. The science of law is the one to be served by all this. But the public in general and legal profession in particular have remained either ignorant of the entire subject or indifferent to the entire scientific movement. And, the, and this ignorance or indifference has blocked the way to progress in administration. The Institute before takes upon itself as one of its aims to inculcate the study of modern criminal science as a pressing duty for the legal profession and for the thoughtful community at large. One of its principal modes of stimulating and aiding this study is to make available in, English, in the English language the most useful treaties now extent in the continental languages. Our country has started very very late and he goes on to talk how you know they wound up working out in their favor um i just wanted to share that with you because i thought it was important because in that time they weren't um getting books printed in english you know they were staying um pretty much in the countries where um they were written i thought that was important to uh include here um, we're going to skip ahead and read the sense of sight. Um, like it's, I want to read to you all this because it's kind of like about all your senses and how they kind of work together. I'll start here. Modern psychology takes qualities perceived externally to be in themselves subjective, but capable of receiving objective, uh, excuse me, objectivity through our relation to the outer world. The qualitative character of our sensory content produced by external stimuli depends primarily on the organization of our senses. This is the fundamental law of perception of modern psychology variously expressed by exomatic and all psychological 
psychology. In this direction, Helm Holes has done pioneer work. He treats particular the problem of optics and physiological optics is the study of perception by means of the sense of sight. We see things in the external world through the me medium of light which they direct upon our eyes. The light strikes the retina and causes a sensation. The sensation brought to the brain by means of the optic nerve becomes the condition of the representation and consciousness of certain objects distributed in space. We, may, we make use of the sensation which the light stimulates in the me mechanism of the optic nerve to construct representation concerning the ex existence, form, and condition of external objects. Hence we call images perceptions of sight. Our sense perception, according to this theory, consists therefore entirely of sensations. The latter cons constitute the stuff or the content from which the other is constructed. Our sensations are effects caused in our organs externally and the manifestation of such an effect depends essentially upon the nature of the apparatus which has been stimulated. There are certain really known interferences, those made by the astronomer from the perspective pictures of the stars of their positions in space. These interferences are found upon well-studied knowledge of the principles of optics. Such knowledge of optics is lacking in the ordinary function of seeing. Nevertheless, it is permissible to conceive the physical function of ordinary perception as unconscious interferences, and inasmuch as this name will completely distinguish them from the commonly so-called conscious interference. The last named condition is of special importance to us. We need investigation to determine the laws of the influence of optical and acoustical knowledge upon perception. These laws are influential, may be verified easily. Whoever is ignorant, not knowing, that a noise is reflected back considerably will say that a wagon is turning from the side from which the noise comes, though if he knows the law, if he knows that fact, his answer would be reversed. So, as every child knows, the reflection of sound is frequently deceptive. Everybody who is asked in court will say that he believes the wagon to be on the right side, though it might as well have been on the left. Again, if we were unaware that light otherwise refracted in water than in air, we could say that a stick in the water has been bent obtusely, but inasmuch as everybody knows this fact of relation of light to water, he will declare that the stick appears bent, but really is straight. From the simplest of 
sense perceptions to the most complicated, known only to half a dozen foremost physicists. There is an infinite series of laws controlling each stage of perception, and for each stage there is a group of men who know just so much and no more. We have therefore to assume that their perceptions will vary with the number and manner of their accomplishments, and we may almost convince ourselves that each examinee who has to give evidence concerning his sense perception should literally undergo examination to make clear his scholarly status and thereby the value of his testimony. Of course, in practice, this is not required. First of all, we judge approximately a man's nature and nurture, and according to the impression he makes upon us, hence his intellectual status. This causes great mistakes. But on the other hand, the testimony is concerned almost always with one or several physical events, so that a simple relational interrogation will establish certainty whether the witness knows and attends to the physical law in question or not. But anyway, too little is done to determine the means a man uses to reach a certain perception if instantaneous contradictions appear. There is little damage for in the absence of anything certain further interference are fortunately made in rare cases only. But when the observation is that of one person alone or even when more testify but have accidentally the same amount of knowledge and hence have made the same mistake and no contradiction appears, we suppose ourselves to possess the precise truth confirmed by several witnesses, and we argue merrily on the basis of it. In the meantime, we quite forget that contradictions are our salvation from the trusting acceptance of untruth, and that the absence of contradictions means as a rule the absence of a starting point for further examination. For this reason and others, modern psychology requires us to be cautious. Among the others is the circumstance that perceptions are rarely pure. Their purity consists in containing nothing else than perception. They are mixed when they are connected with imaginations, judgments, efforts, and violations. How rarely a perception is pure, I have already tried to show judgments almost always accompany it. I repeat, too, that owning to this circumstance and our ignorance of it, countless testimonies are interpreted altogether falsely. This is true in many other fields. When, for example, A. Fix says, the condition we call sensation occurs in consciousness of the subject when his sensory nerves are stimulated. He does not mean that the nervous system in itself is capable of causing the condition in question. This one stimulus is only a single tone and a murmur of countless stimuli, which earlier 
and at the same time have influenced us and are different in their effect on each man. Therefore, that single additional tone will also be different in each man. Or when Bernstein says that sensation I dot E dot the stimulation of the sensoratorium and the passage of the stimulation to the brain does not in itself imply the perception of an object or an event in the external world. We gather that the objectivity of the perception works correctively not more than one time out of many. So here again, everything depends upon the nature and nurture of the subject. Sensations are, according to Albert, still more subjective. They are the specific activity of the sense organs, not therefore passive as according to Helmholtz, but actively active functions of the sense organs. Perception arises when we combine our particular sensations with the pure images of the spirit or the schemata of the understanding, especially with the pure image of space. The so-called ejection or externalization of sensations occur only as their scheme and relation to the unity of their object. So long as anything is conceived as passive, it may always recur more identically than when it is conceived as active. In the latter case, the individuality of the particular person makes the perception in a still greater degree individual and makes it almost the creature of him who perceives. Whether Albert is right or not is not our task to discover. But if he is right, then sense perception is as various as humanity. The variety is still further increased by means of the comprehensive activity which Fisher presupposes. Visual perception has a comprehensive or compounding activity. We never see any absolute simple and hence do not perceive the elements of things. We see merely a spatial continuum, and that is possible only through comprehensive activity, especially in the case of movement in which the object of movement and the environment must both be perceived, but each individual method of comprehension is different. And it is uncertain whether this is purely physical, whether only the memory assists so that the attention is based by what has been last perceived, whether imagination is at work or at a special psych psychical activity must be presupposed in compounding the large elements. The fact is that men may perceive an enormous variety of things with a single glance, and generally the perceptive power will vary with the skill of the individual. The narrowest, smallest, most particularizing glance 
is that of the most foolish, and the broadest, most comprehensive, and comparing glance that of the most wise, this is particularly noticeable when the time of observation is short. The one has perceived little and generally the least important. The other has in the same time seen everything from top to bottom and has distinguished between the important and the unimportant, has observed the former rather than longer than latter and able to give a better description of what he has seen. And then when two so different descriptions come before us, we wonder at them and say that one of them is untrue. And I wanted to share that part with you guys because I've actually taken law enforcement training in my lifetime and they still use the same um, sense today in law enforcement. So when I did my state police training, they actually every single day they would flip they would bring you to a room and they would flip the light on and flip it off and say write down everything you just saw and then one time like the next time it would be a person standing there and they would say write down every description of the businessman that was standing before you that was dressed in a suit and what they were looking for was did you remember that he was wearing a suit, but he had tattoos all over his knuckles. Did you remember that he had a scar by his left cheek? Did you see that he also had three piercings? Um, it was stuff like that. And you only had a second to realize it. But And that's why I wanted to share with you guys this stuff. Because they still, they still are using this book to this day. Yeah, it was written a long time ago, but it's still relevant to the way the human brain perceives with all of its five senses. I want to read to you the sense of sight. Thank you for listening to Only You Podcast. It's your boy Lo Jackson. And today we're doing Criminal Psychology by Hans Gross. Just as the sense of sight is the most dignified of all our senses, it is also the most important in the criminal court for most witnesses to testify as to what they have seen. If we compare sight with the hearing, which is next in the order of importance, we discover the well-known fact that what is seen is much more certain and trustworthy than what is heard. It is better to see once than to hear ten times, says the universally valid old maxim. No exposition, no description, no complication which the data of other senses offer can present half as much as even a fleet glance hence too no sense can offer us such surprises as the sense of sight if i imagine the thunder of nigeria oh, excuse me if i if i imagine the thunder of the niagara the voice of lucia the explosion of a thousand cartridges, etc., or anything else that I have not heard, my imagination is certainly incorrect, but it will differ from reality only in degree. It is quite different with visual imagination. We need to adduce 
examples of magnifiance like the appearance of the pyramids, a tropical light of a famous work of art, a storm at the sea, etc. The most insignificant thing ever seen but variously pictured in imagination will be greeted at first sight with the words, but I imagined it quite different. Hence the tremendous importance of every local and material characteristic which the criminal court deals with. Every one of us knows how differently he has, as a rule, imagined the place of the crime to be, how difficult it is to arrive at an understanding with the witness concerning some unseen local characteristics and how many mistakes false images of the unseen have caused. Whenever I serion excuse me whenever I serioned anybody through the Graz Criminal Museum Oh concierged I'm sorry, that was a hard one. I was continually assailed with does this or that look so? But I thought it looked quite different. And the things which evoke these ex exclamations are such as the astonished visitors have spoken and written about hundreds of times and often pass judgment upon. The same situations occur when witnesses narrate some observation. When the question involves the sense of hearing some misunderstanding may be popularly assumed, but the people know little of optical illusions and false visual perceptions. Yeah, because your senses are so heightened when your amygdala is forced into a fight or flight situation that in dark situations or not very well-lit situations, your mind can definitely play tricks on you. And especially at a glance of, you know, a millisecond, as somebody's doing something to you or chasing you or, you know, I can only imagine um, what witnesses come up with when they're interrogated. And I think we all have had, you know, arguments that, hey, you know, I remember what I saw. And then, you know, and it may not even be anything criminal. It could just be, you know, a wife and a husband having a disagreement about the way a Christmas tree looked over there at their neighbor's house or something stupid, you know? <laughs> Seriously, though, because even as a kid, or like the telephone game, that's a good listening game. You know, it starts at the beginning of the classroom and Aunt Sally's dress is red. And by the time it gets through 30 kids, Aunt Sally's dress is red because... Uncle Jack, you know, threw a can of beets on her and, you know, dyed her white dress red or whatever. You know, it just, we all have seen this kind of situations out there. And I find this to be very informative. And if you guys can find this book, check it out and read it. I am. And this, again, is the basis for the distrust with which we meet testimony concerning hearsay. For we feel uncertain in the mere absence of the person whose conversation is reported, since his value cannot be determined, but a part of 
the mistrust lies in the fact that it is not vision, but the purinally half-doubted hearing that is, and it that is the issue. Lies, lies are assigned mainly to words, but there are lies which are visual de deceptions, masking, illusions, etc. Visual lies are, however, a diminishing minority in comparison with the lies that are heard. But we also all have encountered very marvelous musicians in the world, you know, Chris Angel, David Copperfield, they can create illusions right in front of you that leave you wandering. So, I mean, in the height of a criminal moment or, you know, something going on that was criminal, you could be deceived very easily. The certainty of the correctness of vision lies in its being tested with the sense of touch and the adaption of our body sense to otherwise exit things. The agreement between our visual perceptions and the external world rests at least in the most important matters on the same ground that all our knowledge of the actual world rests on upon the experience and the lasting test of their correctness by means of experiments. So, he's saying that you got to find experiments to really, you know, test that witnesses perception of what went down you know you can't just take them at face value yeah they're the you know the greatest person in town they got the best reputation you know or, or whatever but everybody's eyes deceive them at some point in their lives you know this would almost make it seem that the supreme judge among the senses is the the touch but that is not intended we know well enough to what illusions we are subject if we trust the sense of touch alone. At the same time, we must suppose that the question here is one of the nature of the body, and this can be measured only by something similar, by our own physical characteristics, by always under the excuse me, but always under the control of some other sense, especially the sense of sight. Yeah, because, I mean, without sight, could you imagine that? Just, you know, being a blind person or being a deaf person. I, I do. When I see them people in the world, I don't feel sorry. I I think, wow, you know, what kind of life are, are they living or what have they had to go through? You know, I think that I've been through a lot. You know, come on. There's people out there that are really going through some struggles. And they could be one of the five senses, you know, that they lost. The visual, I done gone smell blind, Paul. <laughs> that was in a movie. I done, he done gone smell blind. <laughs> the visual process itself consists, according to Fisher, of a compounded series of results which succeed each other with extraordinary repeti uh, repetitiveness and are casually related. In this series, the following elements may principally be distinguished. 1. The physico-chemical process. 2. The physiological sensory. 3. The physiological. 4. The physiological motor. 5. The process of perception. 
It is not our task to examine the first four elements. In order clearly to understand the variety of perception, we have to deal with the last only. I once tried to explain this by means of the phenomenon of instantaneous photographs, which I have done um, EMDR, and it is amazing. It's a type of therapy that they they literally, it's almost as though they erase the pain, hurt, sorrow, or the stress. When you do EMDR therapy, it's just like the, what he's saying here, instantaneous photographs. And that, I mean, this was written long before they ever thought about M, uh, e, EMDR, which is um, eye movement desensitization therapy. Oh, uh, rapid movement therapy. That's what it is, EMDR. Thank you guys for listening. If we examine one such representing an instant and some quick movement, we will assert that we never could have perceived it in the movement itself. This indicates that our vision is slower than that of the photographic apparatus and hence that we do not apprehend the smallest particular conditions Hence why they have instant replay, you know, or where like, you know, you got to take a timeout in football just to look over the call because, you know, referees' eyes aren't as fast as reality. You know, they're not able to keep up that fast with reality. So, right here, and it's that's what it's kind of talking about here, I believe. But that we each time unconsciously compound a group of the smallest conditions and construct that way the so-called instantaneous impressions. If we are to compound a great series of instantaneous impressions in one galloping step, we must have condensed and compounded a number of them in order to get the image that we see with our eyes as instantaneous. We may therefore say that the least instantaneous image we ever see with our eyes contains many parts which only the photographic apparatus can grasp and that's why we got amazing video cameras and all the greatest technology that are faster than the human eye and they can zoom in closer to the, than the human eye suppose we call these particular instances a b c d e f g h j k l m n o p it is self-evident that the manner of their composition must vary with each individual one Man may compound his elements in groups of three, A, B, C, or D, E, F. Another may proceed in diarades of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, etc. A third may have seen an unobviousable instant ladder, but constructs his image like the first man, B, C, D, L, M, N, etc. A fourth works slowly and rather inaccurately getting A, C, D, F, H, I, etc. Such variations multiply, and when variation, various observers of the same event describe it, they do it according to their different characteristics. And the difference may be tremendous. Substitute numerals for letters and the thing becomes clear. The relative slowness of our apprehension of visual elements has the other consequence that we interpolate objects in the Lucinea 
of vision according to our exceptions. The, oh, excuse me, according to our expectations. The best example of this sort of thing would be the perception of assault and battery. When 10 people in an inn see how A raises a beer glass against B's head 5 expect, expect, now he'll pound him and 5 others. Now he'll throw it. If the glass has reached B's head, none of the 10 observers have seen how it reached there. But the first five take their oath that A pounded B with the glass and the other five that he threw it at B's head. And all 10 have really seen it. So firmly are they convinced of the correctness of their swift judgment of expectation now, before we treat the witness to some reproach like untruth, inattention, silliness, or something, oh, excuse me, or something um, equally nice, we had better consider whether his story is not true and whether the difficulty might not really lie in the imperfection of our own censuratory processes. This involves particular. Partially, what Libman has called anthropocentric vision, seeing with man as the center of things. Libman further asserts that we see things only in perspective size, only from an angle of vision varying with their approach, withdrawal, and change of position. But in no sense as definite cubical linear or surface sizes, the apparent size of an object we call an angle of vision at a certain distance, but what indeed is the different true size. We know only relations of magnitude. This deception is important excuse me, this description is important when we are dealing with testimony concerning size. It seems obvious that each witness who speaks of size is to be asked whence he had observed it, but at the same time a great many unexpected errors occur, especially when what is involved is the determination of size of an object in the same plane. One need only to recall the meaning of railway tracks, street alley, etc., and to remember how different in size according to the point of view of the witness. Various objects in such places must appear. Everybody knows that distant things seem smaller and that near ones, but, al but almost nobody knows what the difference amounts to. So, that's pretty interesting, you guys. And they still do this in courts today. So if you think about what you just heard, you could totally put that in a legal situation in a courtroom and realize how a prosecutor could break down a witness just by reading this book and realizing that, hey, all I got to do is make you look incredible because of the point of view you said you were standing at, and I can make you look foolish because you have no idea that I read this book and I, I'm deceiving you, but I'm trying you to deceive yourself. And a lot of times I think in law that happens and it's unfortunate, but a lot of times I do believe justice does prevail over, 
you know, injustices of, you know, people being wrongly convicted, things like that. I would give this book a five-star review. It talked so much about so many other psychological um, viewpoints in here that I would say it's a five-star review, definitely. This guy's totally intelligent. Um, I'm going to read to you some other stuff, too. I'm just going to skip ahead here and just start somewhere. There are still a few other significant facts. One, it is well known that the portion of the skin which covers a bone and which is then so pulled away that it covers a fleshy part, cannot easily identify the point of stimulation. Such transpositions may be made intentionally in this experiment, but they occur frequently through vigorous twists of the body. When the upper part of the body is drawn backwards while one is sitting down, a collection of such transpositions occur and it is very hard then to localize a blow or stab so two when an arm is held backwards in such a way as to turn the flat of the hand uppermost it is still more difficult to locate a wound when one part of the body is held by another person and the skin pulled aside see and it talks about so much stuff in here you guys like it's wild this whole book was just like a, it was a great read. It was just so interesting. I, I think you should get out there and get it. Um, he was, you know, obviously the father of pretty much, you know, criminal justice, really, or one of them. We get this situation immature each, immature each time we hear of a crime. However barren the news may be, no more than a telegraphic word tells you how old this book is. The event must naturally have some degree of importance. Because if I hear merely that a silver watch has been stolen, I do not try to imagine that situation. If, however, I hear that near a holstery in X, a peasant was robbed by two traveling apprentices, I may immediately get an image which contains... Not only the unknown region, but also the event of the robbery and even perhaps the faces of those concerned. And I think if you have an imagination like that and you're able to reconstruct a crime in that retrospect, I believe those are some of the most highly intelligent detectives, um, you know, criminology people out there. I know several of those people personally, and I raise my hat to them, anybody in law enforcement. It is a hard gig right now, especially all the things that have been um, in the news. So so many different viewpoints. Uh, defund the police. Not saying that all the things that the police all over the country have been right, but I do believe that I do know. Actually, I know for a fact. I mean, the your first three years out of the academy... You're called a rookie for a reason. You're a rookie because you're by the book. So when you get pulled over by a rookie, that's the guy that wants to do everything by the book. He's aggressive. He's mad. He don't want you to pull a gun on him, but he wants to know that he's in control of that situation, that you're not going to try any funny business. Um, usually after being in social interactions for about three years, a police officer will then revert back to his natural state. He'll turn the rookie into... Um, an actual legitimate police officer at that point, and 
he will have been, seen so many different horrible situations that the rookie will have to have compassion or empathy and then in turn he becomes a better police officer if not a better detective because he is not so much by the book he is by the book but then again he isn't or he shouldn't be because once you get into so many different so social situations and you realize how crazy people can be when there are domestic situations or thefts or you know um arguments or disagreements um you know, you have no idea the different situations that police officer encounters every single day. Um, they go through so many different types of trainings. Um, my idea for the police would be to have an on-call um, psychologist. So when they do have to go to a situation where it is a domestic situation, that they have somebody there that actually has psychological knowledge that knows that, hey, you know, you don't just, you know, go up to somebody aggressively or you don't just use misinformation to whittle somebody out of something, you know, because, I mean, there are unprofessional tactics that police do use and everybody knows that, but those aren't the police... Um, themselves or the actual municipality and you know letting them do that that's their own biases or their own upbringings or their own psychological behaviors coming out that they're not aware of and a lot of times those guys will be mentored by you know a captain um, a lieutenant somebody that's been there and done that for several years and they've moved past the social aspect of being in the community and you know have probably taken a desk job at that point but a lot of times in those situations, people are mentored and they are mentored correctly. And unfortunately, society only sees that, oh, they did us wrong, oh, there's injustices. Well, in reality, there's injustices way worse in other countries. And the United States Justice ha Department has been around for a long time. And our laws have been secure, even though they have been amended many, many times to find loopholes and errors in our situation that weren't ever meant to be but you know when things are amended people find ways to get their way even though that it may not you know just because it's law doesn't always mean that it's moral is what I'm trying to say and thank you guys for listening and I was doing criminal psychology a manual for judges practitioners and students by Hans Gross and Hans was actually a professor, too. So you guys get out there and check that book out. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you, and keep on coming back. I enjoy it. Talk to you soon.